Dear God, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts more than anything. And um, may, when, may our hearts lead to our hands reaching out, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to admit to you that doing a sermon series or a teaching series on the poor is kind of something strange for me. And after I shared last week, I thought to myself, man, I feel like I could have just spoken at an Episcopal church. Now, there's nothing wrong with Episcopals. Um, Wonderful people. (laughs) If any of you have an Episcopal background. Yes. Very close. close. Yes, Episcopals are great people. But it seems as though it's just kind of like this, hey, go out and help people type of message. And a lot of times that can turn into a sort of humanistic idea where we just tell people to live up to a certain moral code, a moral standard, and um, we don't give them any sort of gospel motivation. And so I want to be clear as we move forward in our little teaching series here as we talk about blessed are the poor. You remember those words Jesus shared? We were looking at Luke chapter 6, among other verses. But Jesus said, blessed are you poor. And as we went through all of, all of Luke, we, we, we dropped in and out. We, we, we encountered this little dichotomy, this, this little, these two camps, as it were, that, that Jesus brings up. He talks a lot about the rich, and he talks a lot about the poor. And he talks about the importance of us reaching out to the poor. And so, as I said last week, you may have been able to leave and just think to yourself, okay, good, good, i got to go be good to poor people, right? i got to be nice to poor people. But we're going to spend some more time unpacking, mostly from the book of Luke, but also today we're going to unpack a passage from Luke's, one of Luke's closest friends, the Apostle Paul. Luke traveled around with the Apostle Paul throughout the, the, the Middle Eastern region and Europe and Asia Minor. And so Paul, of course, was a very, very important figure in the Christian movement, the rise of Christianity. But there is a, a, a passage, there is a little verse that Paul shares that absolutely must stand as the foundation to all that we think about and all that we talk about and all that we process when it comes to our attitude about and our treatment of the poor. And what we're going to look at today will be taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you even have a Bible in your hands, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, or if you have one on your phone, we're going to put some verses on the screen, of course, but we're going to be kind of j- dropping in and out of a few verses there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Last night, as I was preparing for this teaching today, I said to myself, I need to get my, my mind, I need to wrap my mind around what Paul is talking about here, not only in this verse, but the broader context. And, and so I decided to go through the whole book of 2 Corinthians, which is what we're going to do this morning. Is that Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. 
We're not going to go through the whole book. But I went through the whole book, and man, I was just so incredibly blessed. My spirits were, were just lifted so high. And uh, hopefully the, the enthusiasm will come out here this morning. And, the, and the, the excitement that I was able to experience last night is passed on a little bit to you this morning. But 2 Corinthians is a very interesting book because Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth for the second time. And he is running into problems with the believers in Corinth. Not over issues of Jew or Gentile. Not only over issues of ethnicity. The Corinthians are actually questioning Paul's right to speak into their life. They are questioning whether Paul has the credentials to be an authority figure in their experience. And so they're, they're kind of wondering whether Paul has this, this, this change in his pocket, so to speak. And there seems to be some conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. One of the things that Paul really had a burden for, which is brought out in this book, one of the things he really had a burden for was he was taking up a collection for the poor Jews in Jerusalem. As Paul went around the Asia and Asia Minor, he would raise up new churches. And one of his main goals, and, and we don't always appreciate this when we're just reading through his books and we don't understand the wider context. One of his main burdens was to make sure the churches that he raised up, the Jesus communities that he raised up, they were contributing to the welfare, the well-being of the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. There were some issues that had arisen in Jerusalem and in that area. And so there was great need. And so one of the interesting things that happened was when Paul and Peter had a discussion about what they were going to do as far as ministry, Peter said, I'm going to go preach to the Jews. Paul, you go and preach to the Gentiles. But I also want you, Paul, to do one more thing. I want you to make sure that your communities that you raise up contribute to the well-being and the welfare of the Jews back in Jerusalem. Evidently, and there seems to be some indication of this in the book of Acts chapter 11, that there was a famine that actually occurred in that area, and so there was great need among the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem at that time. And so Paul, wherever he goes, he's not only proclaiming the gospel, he is raising awareness of the importance of contributing to the well-being of those Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Not only because they had need, but because it would, it would breed goodwill between Gentile and Jew. And so he goes around and he goes to Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica and he goes to Berea and he goes to all these places and he makes sure that these Gentile believers were laying money aside so that when he went back to Jerusalem, he could bring the money with him and deliver it to those who are in need in Jerusalem. In fact, if you, if you may remember in the book of Romans, those of you who have read it, Paul actually gives them instruction. He says, on the first day of the week, I want you to lay aside money every week. Now, of course, that has caused some people to think that that's when they were worshiping and there's been that whole discussion. But all Paul was saying is, listen, we want to make sure that we're prioritizing this, this financial investment that we're making in those in need in Jerusalem. So now he comes to the Corinthians and he's having some, some conflict with them and he's wanting to encourage them to keep on contributing 
to this collection and not only keep on contributing, but to actually make good on what they promised they were going to do. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, we'll see uh, one reminder of this. Paul says, last year, you were the first, he's speaking again to the Corinthians, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. He's like, good job. He says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. In other words, what he's saying is here, you guys started out and you said, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to commit and we're pledging ourselves to give money to those in need. But he says, you, you've not quite followed through on that. And so I want you to keep on doing that. He says, I want you to make good on the, on the, on the decision you made. He goes on to say now in chapter 9, jumping forward a few verses, So he says, so I thought that it was necessary to urge the brothers to visit you. He's speaking here of Titus and probably Timothy. He says, I I urge the brothers to visit you in advance of my visit to you and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. He's saying, listen, I don't want this to be uh, something that you get bitter about. He says, I want you to do it because you want to do it. And he goes on to share these lines. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will reap also generously. Each Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion. And here's a very famous line, perhaps, that some of us have heard when we were children, right? For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. So in other words, don't do it with bitterness. Don't do it with, with don't do it begrudgingly. Don't have this animosity and say, okay, I guess I better do it because I said I was going to do it. Paul says, do it cheerfully. This is what God wants. Now, there's whole lots of implications we could break down where it says God loves a cheerful giver as though he doesn't love non-cheerful givers. Well, there's a sense in which, just as those of us who have children, when our children do something nice for us, it's not that we decide to ourselves and say, okay, I'm going to love that child now. But there's a certain warmth that, that stirs up in our hearts, that, that bubbles up in our hearts. And, and we have an affection when people do nice things for us, don't we? And so Paul, again, he's not here implying that God's love is conditional upon our behavior. But, but we cheer his heart when we, when we serve out of love and out of willingness. Now, we're going to take a jump back. Just a second. Follow, make sure you're following me here. We're going to take a jump back to the beginning of this little treatment in 2 Corinthians in the beginning of chapter 8. Because Paul does something very interesting here. He's starting to remind the Corinthians that they have made this commitment to give this gift. And later on, as the verses we just read, he was saying to them, hey, make good on this, make good on this. But notice what he does. He says, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. These are not the churches that he's writing to. The Macedonian churches were like the churches, the church of Philippi, the church of, of Thessalonica. These are different churches. And so Paul is saying, hey, I want, you to, I want you to hear about this. The Macedonian churches, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So he's announcing to them, it would be like me coming to you and saying, hey guys, I want you to hear about the Ellsworth church. 
I want you to hear about the Freeport Church. Now, those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists, these are not Seventh-day Adventists, these are other Seventh-day Adventist churches. But I want you to know about these churches. You know what they're doing? They're really giving a lot of money to the poor. That's what Paul's basically doing here. He's saying, just to let you know, that's what's going on here. So he says, he goes on and says, he says, even in their extreme poverty, they were generous. They just gave out of their poverty, not out of their abundance. And he says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able. And listen to this. They went even beyond their ability. These were, you have to understand, in that context of this time, especially Christians, they were poor people. There was a lot of poverty amidst the, the, the believers of Jesus themselves. A lot, oftentimes, uh, um, giving your, your life to Christ meant the loss of great economic advantage. So he said, they went above and beyond. He says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. They're saying, no, no, we want to help. We want to help. Maybe Paul said, you know what? You guys don't have a lot. Don't worry about giving very much. And they said, no, 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 no. We want to give as much as we can. He goes on to say, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had early made, earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. In other words, I sent Titus to make sure that you, you made good on what you said you were going to do. And then he goes on to say, but since you excel in everything, you guys are, are model Christians, he says. You excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of what? This grace of giving, this act of grace giving of of your means to support others. And then he says this, I am not commanding you. I'm not telling you you have to do this. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So he's just saying, you know, we're just, again, I'm just setting up this little healthy competition here. The churches in Macedonia, they gave of themselves. What about you? Are you going to step up to the plate and, and meet the task? And then here comes the whole punchline to the whole teaching this morning. And this is a powerful. Paul comes along and he inserts this dynamite of a thought. And he says this. For you know, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty, might become rich. Paul lays down right in the middle of this very practical, important invitation to participate in sharing your means with those in need. He lays down right in the middle a ginormous gospel bomb. And he recognizes that in order for them to experience the generous grace that he is inviting them to participate in, in, they need to encounter and they need to be reminded of the significance of Jesus' incarnation. And he basically tells them that in order for them to to step out into this act of charity, he says the grace of giving. That's what he had called it. The grace of giving. He has to remind them, first of all, of the grace of God. And so you and I can only be generous to the degree that we understand that God is generous with us. 
He says this, for you know. He's like, you, can, you guys know this. I, I'm, just, I'm just reminding you of it. Now that word know is a word that is loaded with meaning. It's pregnant with meaning. There's, there's so much to it that, that we can get beneath the surface and understand. This is not simply an intellectual experience. And, and this theme comes up, I, I know, frequently with, with my, my teaching, but it's not just an intellectual experience. This is something that Paul wants to invite the Corinthians and, by extension, you and me to, to understand. And that is, this is a, this is a perception. This is, a, this is an intimate knowledge. This is a, some translations, or sometimes it can even be translated, to feel. We want you to feel and understand and perceive, not just with your mind, but with your heart. We want you to dwell upon. We want you to, to, to embrace and be embraced by this reality that God, who is rich, who is, who is the, the, the most rich being in the universe, of course, he emptied himself. He laid it all aside. He made himself nothing. This is echoes of what he would write later on to the believers in Philippi where he says that, that Christ emptied himself, making himself of no reputation. This is the incarnation of God. There's many stories of men who would be God, but there's only one story in all of literature of a God who would become a man. And when Paul says that Jesus was rich, he's not speaking as far as his earthly life, as far as him being having material means. We know as we read the Gospels that Jesus, he said, didn't have a place to lay his head. His parents weren't these wealthy, well-to-do people. This is speaking of the the great condescension of God. This is speaking of of Jesus becoming a baby, going from being omnipotent and omniscient and and being all-present. This is him taking on all the limitations and all the liabilities of what it means to be a little baby in a womb. Just, Just yesterday when I was home with the kids, I make these videos every year of kind of the year in review of all the things that we enjoy. And um, we show them usually in summer when we're up in our family gathering in Nova Scotia. And um, we don't watch them beyond that. But I said, you know what? We got some time to kill. It's just me and the kids, of course. So let's watch a little video here from, from five years ago. And this was the birth of Winslow. And so, you know, that's always fun to watch Watch her. It wasn't literally watching her being born, but it was you know right after. Um, but 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 there she is, little Winslow, and she, you know she's ooing and eyeing over herself as a little little one day old, two hour old, whatever it was when I first put the camera on her. But to think that it's so mind boggling. Nobody in their right mind, none of us right here, I can guarantee you. None of us right here would freely choose to become a little baby right now. We say, you know, I think that'd be that'd be fun to do, right? None of us would choose that that experience. And yet the God of the universe, though he was rich, yet for your sake, for and he's saying this to Corinthians, a lot of times he uses we and our. He is making it personal. He's saying, for your sake, Corinthians. For your sake, Bangor, Seventh-day Adventist Church. For your sake, he became poor. He emptied himself. He, he put aside all of his prerogatives. 
because he wanted to stoop down so that he could lift us up. Not because, and I, I'm going to go back to what Sarah said a few weeks ago, not because we're this worthless, like no good worms, like, oh, I guess I'll throw them a bone. It's like because he saw value in us. He saw worth in us. He saw that we were significant to him. And he says, I'm going to to be with them. I can't help myself but to be with them. And so he he made himself poor and he, he wanted the Corinthians to understand the reality of this grace. He said, you know the grace. The word is charis in Greek. You know that grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He became He became poor for our sake. And then he goes on to say, so that you, through his poverty, speaking to the Corinthians, might become rich. Now this can't, of course, be materially rich because where's my my big check that is going to be delivered to me, right? This is not a prosperity gospel that says, yay, we're all going to be millionaires because God has shed his favor down upon us. This is the reality of our of our richness in the grace of God. What we give and what we put in the offering plate, and this is not a sermon on, on throwing the offering plate on because we don't even have an offering plate. But, but, but when we give, that is simply a symptom of an inward experience of our hearts. That we have grasped and laid hold of the grace, the infinite, costly grace of God. And he's inviting us to embrace the reality of that because he was so devoted to our well-being that he was willing to lay it all aside, that he was willing to, to throw it all away for you and for me. And so you and I, as we continue, as we go down the road of speaking about blessing the poor, as we think about the, the need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And as we draw close to those who are in need, it cannot happen unless we are firmly grounded in the reality of God's poverty for us. And so everything we say going forward needs to be understood in that light as we understand the value we have to him. And you know what happens when we when we grasp and we lay hold of and we embrace and we recognize the, the, the matchless grace of God and the, the, the poverty that God willingly took in the person of Jesus, it, it, it meets with an echo of grace from us. That's what he said, the grace of giving. There's this book that I've read a few chapters in and Ellie recommended it to me and so I... I've slowly gone through it, but it's, it's this book called 1,000 Gifts, and it's by a woman named Ann Voskamp. Maybe some of you have read it, but she, what she's trying to do is basically live out a life of complete gratitude. The term that is used in Greek in the, Old, in the New Testament is the word eucharisteo, from where the word eucharist is, is, is uh, derived from. And of course, the Eucharist has certain connotations in certain religious uh, circles. It's often considered to be what is the mass there for the Catholic faith. That's sort of a, a little distorted view of what the original idea was. 
But the, the idea of eucharisteo is simply the act of giving thanks. And it comes from the word charis, grace. So when God gives us his grace, we respond with an echo of our own grace. You like the idea of gracing God, of giving God grace? And so this woman here, Ann Boskamp, trying to live out a life of gratitude and grace, she says, the brave who focus on all things good and all things beautiful and all things true, even in the small, who give thanks for it and discover joy even in the here and now, they are the change agents who bring fullest light to all the world. When we lay the soil of our hard lives open to the reign of grace and let joy penetrate our cracked and dry places, let joy sink into our broken and deep crevices, life grows. How can this not be the best thing for the world? For us, the clouds open when we mouth thanks. And then check this out. I love this line. When I realize that it is not God who is in my debt, when I go around and think, okay, God has debts that he owes me. When I go around and I realize that it is not God who is in my debt, but I am in his great debt, then doesn't all become gift? Everything in life is now a gift. Everything is a gift. Everything is, is the act of this boundless mercy of God who has emptied himself and has so valued us and entered into our situation. And everything else on top of that is just gravy. Everything else is just the, the cherry on top as you and I recognize that God has already given us all things in Jesus. And so we can live lives of gratitude as we pass on the grace that has been shed abroad in our hearts. You know, this last week, as I always, well, not always, but most weeks I do, and I share stories frequently from my experiences. But this week I was sitting in Bagel Central with my friends from the Jewish synagogue, including the rabbi. And as I've mentioned before in past sermons, one of the underlying themes that we, we talk about in, in, this, uh, in this context is that I've come to understand that, that a lot of Jews don't really think that God cares about us. That's just, it was a very staggering, you know, recognition. And so this week, to make a long story short, my, my rabbi friend, Bill, he, he looks at me and he asked me a very pointed question about a, an event that just took place that is gaining attention in the media. But at the core of his question was, do you think God really cares about this person? That's basically what he was saying. It was a person running for president and they had made a statement about, about some issue and Basically, what they were saying is, God really values me and cares about me. And he said, you think that's true? And so as I sat there, he put me on the spot. He, he gave me a few minutes. He went up and ordered a bagel. And he said, I'll give you some time to think about your answer. And so he came back, and I, I was loaded and ready to go. And I said, you know what? I think God cares about us. And he and a few of his other congregants, they kind of chuckled. And they said, well, how can you be so sure of that? And I said, guys... If, if God exists, which is not entirely clear if they believe that, but if God exists and we exist, what's the point of our existence if it wasn't for the reality that God cares about us? I mean, why have children if you're not going to care about those children, right? Maybe that's a, that's a, a question that hits a little too close to home for some of us. And maybe that's 
part of our challenge is understanding that God does care about us even when our parents didn't. But if, if, if there is a creator and there are created beings, what's the point? Unless God does have an interest in us. And they kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit over that. And then after a few minutes, I said, guys, I have to admit my bias here. And I praise God. You get in these situations, there's always opportunities to share the gospel. I said, I have to admit my bias here. I, of course, am interpreting this question through the lens of Jesus. I said, I know, obviously, you guys, you know, have a little struggle with Jesus. I get that. But I have to say that I understand and interpret this whole question through the lens of Jesus. After all, God cares so much about humanity that he himself became a human. And he related to humans. And he was there with his disciples and John laid upon his chest. And we see this picture in the Gospels and these stories of Scripture that show us the heart of God, that show us that God takes an interest in who we are, that God takes an interest in our well-being, And I know there's all sorts of implications and questions and I don't have an answer for all these things like, of course, where was God when six million Jews got slaughtered in the Holocaust? And I'm pretty sure God probably didn't really help the Patriots win the Super Bowl. But, like, the reality is is that there is Jesus to show us the heart of God. At the center of this verse that we just read is that though he was rich, but for our sakes... For your sake, for my sake, we became poor. I kind of—I didn't say all this in the in my response, but most of what I just shared. You know, there was one of the gentlemen there who was there. He's a retired physician, you know, very well educated, and he was sitting there and he looked at me and he said, "Huh?" He said, "That's interesting." He said, "I don't think I've ever heard Jesus explained in that way." And he said, he literally said this. He said, huh, I kind of like that. And that was that. (laughs) You know, this profound reality, the profound reality that Jesus came, he emptied himself. Though he was rich, he became poor to show us the heart of this generous, this omni-generous, if I can make up a term, this omni-generous, omni-benevolent, which simply means all good, all loving God, Jesus came to show us that reality. And that gives you and it gives me, it should give us such elevated conceptions of who we are. I know In my experience, I have to be reminded of that. And just like Janine, I have to remind myself of these things again and again. And so perhaps you, in the quietness of your own heart, you have have a blockage in your own emotional capacity. You You have a ceiling that you've reached in your abilities to to be generous with others or to love others or to care for others. And your ceiling will only rise as you understand the love of God to greater heights. 
So I want to invite you to just to dwell on that, 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 that idea, that thought. To dwell on the reality of your belovedness. Dwell on the reality of the value that God sees in you. That though he was rich, he had all the resources of heaven, he had everything he could ever need. And yet he wanted us. He wanted us. He desired us. He deemed us worthy of his grace and his love. We sing the song so often, and Aaron's going to start playing the piano. We sing the song so often, but we can never sing it enough. And I wish I had somebody up here singing with me so that I could harmonize to it, because this needs harmony. But um, Oscar, you're volunteering? (laughs) 